walked away from the church. Of all the millions that did, the kids that stayed had three things consistent in their life. And it was almost a one-to-one correlation that they made corporate worship, their families made corporate worship a real priority, like, like it controlled the week, not the week controlled it, that they had family worship. Every week they had some type of family worship. Um, and then they had, a, they had times of prayer, intentional prayer weekly with their kids. The, the people, the families that practiced those three things saw less than 1% leave, leave and walk away from their faith. So we're, we want to help you equip you in doing that. Jason's going to talk more about that. We'll have that coming up. Lastly, uh, Caroline, great job. Um, isn't that amazing when you think 4.6 billion with a B of lost people in the world, 3 billion of those 4.6 are considered unreached meaning they have no real access to the gospel. Of the 7,000 unreached people groups, 3,000 of those have yet to be engaged at all. 3,000 people groups, not people, people groups that have not been engaged with the gospel. And so certainly that we need to pray um, that God would raise up and send out laborers into the field. We're going to read out of Philippians 2 as our passage today. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. When we started this book back in uh, the summer, and it's taken us quite a while to get even to chapter 2, it is going to speed up uh, once we get to here, but... This is the passage that grabbed my heart like no other because it's so countercultural. It is just so different. When you read this passage, you see, um, you see what the church is supposed to be, this faith family is supposed to be. And yet many of you, if you've been to church very long, you've seen what the church is not supposed to be. Uh, you've been in churches that, that don't do this well, that don't even strive after this. Certainly even in our own church, there's been hiccups where, where, where we don't look like, like this picture of the church. I, I was on the treadmill uh, the other day. I know it's hard to tell, but I was on the treadmill the other day. <clears throat> and in front of me at the gym, there's three TVs and they're on mute. They got the little closed caption thingy. And uh, normally treadmill for me is I, I put in some kind of a sermon or soul feed and reading a book or something like that. So I've got the headphones in, but I, I noticed the correlation on these three TVs in front of me. One of the TV was talking about how um, in politics, how the junior uh, senators won't room with each other. You know, a lot of them don't live there permanently and a lot of organizations have provided free housing for them, but 
they refuse to room with people who are across the aisle. So they, not only do they disagree, they disagree so vehemently that they can't even share uh, a room in, in Washington, D.C. That was one TV. <clears throat> the, the, the next TV um, was about a lawsuit in the NFL and, you know, somebody suing someone else. And you kind of expect some of those things. But then the third TV was about a, uh, a church that was suing its leaders and its staff, and it had become a real ugly mess. It was a local news story. And it was just a reminder to me, like, I expect this in politics. I expect this in the NFL. I, I do not expect this in the church. And it's just a reminder of the vitriol and division in our culture and in the world or are so high and so normal, that's the normal course of life, that if we aren't careful, that that attitude bleeds into the church. And Lamont said, you can safely assume that you've created a God in your own image when it turns out that that God hates all the same people as you do. And it's an indictment, I think, on the church, the Christian church, it's an awareness that we're being socialized at nearly every level of our worlds to think like that, to feel like that. The culturation of the world is very strong. And do you know how hard it is to turn that off and walk into this community of faith and be a sacrificial, welcoming, agape love kind of community who only sees through the lens of Jesus? It's almost impossible. It's impossible now and it was impossible then. Paul had to deal with the same thing at Philippi. He's writing this letter to this church that he loves, how to take all the division and separation in the culture and to break off a counterculture of love and grace. Remember last week, Paul finished chapter one with this clarifying call to strive side by side for faith in the gospel. Kind of this overarching statement of sorts. It was idealistic maybe a little bit. It was certainly inspirational. It's a positive way of helping us focus on the bigger picture. And it's so inspiring, this striving side by side. But it keeps going. This is really part two of that message. And there's probably a third part that's coming. Today, he brings it home. He gives us direct application. And so today I want to talk about community, really gospel community, really to take it even further, this idea of unity within community. And Paul's just so dogmatic about this, he keeps coming back to it again and again. He wants us to get it. And here's the overarching statement, and then, then I want to pray for us that we wouldn't just hear it with our ears, but we would hear it with our hearts. Community is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. Community is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. Pray with me, please. Father, the enemy does not want us to hear this message today. Does not want us to hear these words. Do not, does not want us to apply them. If anything, that we would be so distracted and focused on so many other things, the things that are coming after, that we would miss you. Lord, don't let us miss you. Lord, would you speak to us through your word? 
Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the things in our own lives, the things that we have yet to even acknowledge as sin? Would you, would you bring those up so that we could deal with them and repent of them and bring them to you? Would you put a direct step of obedience in front of us that we would follow you? Jesus, that we would make much of you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Community is not about the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. You get this, any relationship you've ever been in, if you're, if you're honest with people and you go to the next level, if you're married or you got kids or you had a best friend or a roommate or you were born in a family, you understand that community is not the absence of conflict. There's always going to be conflict. Somebody's going to do something or say something and it's going to irk you or irritate you and you're going to let it fester a little bit. And depending on how you deal with that, you'll either stuff it and talk about it with a counselor in 20 years or you'll explode on the other side of it and become really angry over something that's really not that big of a deal. Uh, but community is not the absence of conflict. There's going to be conflict. Um, there's going to be conflict. If you do community with me, if there's just going to be conflict. I, I, I love this study even in the disciples, how there were always conflicts with the disciples. And Jesus just was so patient and <laughs> he was so careful and so kind to them that he didn't just smite them or something. You know, they, they just didn't get it and they never got it. They didn't really even get it until Jesus had gone and the spirit had come. It's not the absence of conflict. We're all going to have conflicts. And today, if you lean into this passage, this text, this, it has a key to resolving conflict in your life, in your home, in your work life, certainly in our faith family, in the church. Some keys in this passage, if you'll apply them with the presence and direction of God here in just a few minutes, it will help you carry the aroma of Jesus with you maybe like never before. He starts with giving us this beautiful vision of unity, this the beauty of unity, I'll say, this is kind of the first point. He loves these people. The letter begins, if you remember, in chapter 1 with him praying for them with all joy because of their partnership in the gospel. They are his joy and his crown, he says. If you've ever heard the term crowning achievement, that's what these people are. These are, these are the closest church that has gotten it so far. And Paul's proud of them and loves them. But he also wants more for them. And this is my heart, man, I have, I have cried and repented and prayed through this passage a thousand times since beginning of June as I've read through this passage that we would be that kind of thing. He's putting in front of them that the church at Philippi can just go on and they can be this sweet little church, this sweet little community church. Or they can grab hold of the deeper things of God and they can transform the entire culture. They can be a church in the margins not really written on the pages of history and just be this sweet little church. Or they can grasp hold the gospel and let it infiltrate every part of their life and then God could use them to change the entire culture. And I'm so thankful they chose the latter and not the former. And one of the things that they dealt with was disunity. This is why Paul's having to address this and later gonna actually call actual people's names out because they're fighting within the church. Remember, he says in verse 27 of chapter 1, that I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. This is the beauty of unity. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in the, of one mind, he says in our passage today. We go back to verse 1 where he sets up this 
admonishment, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, then complete my joy by being of this same mind. He says, friends, if you've received encouragement from Jesus, if you've received comfort in knowing that you're his, remember the, the hip from last week, this intimacy, this new access that we have, this holiness, this new ethic that we pursue, this, this power alive within us through the spirit. If, you, if, if that's true, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind and having the same love. Any affection or sympathy from the spirit as the spirit is working through you and working through others. Paul's making this case that Christian unity is more powerful and more beautiful than we can possibly understand. Tim Keller in his commentary on, on this passage would go on to say the reason that, the, that Europe, the whole continent of Europe, this is the first church planted, had such a revolution of Christianity in the next 300 years was because of this unity principle. It was so countercultural. Do you hear it in his voice? He wants them to be unified, to be on the same page, working towards the same mission, caring and loving each other in such a countercultural way. And it is beautiful. I mean, we, we, watch, we watch movies like Remember the Titans or any movie where someone's got to like get everybody on the same page, chasing after the same goal, and then they get it. It's this beautiful picture of working together. This is beautiful even in your own family. I love it when my kids don't see me and I'm just right outside, kind of creeper, I guess, kind of right outside their room, and, and they're playing well together. You know, they're, they're blessing each other. They're, they're freely sharing things with each other. It's, it, it blesses my father's heart like, like nothing else. Something about it just wants me to, cause me to pour my blessing on them, but Conversely, when they're fighting and bickering, it's quite the opposite. My stomach turns and my anger rises and my disappointment just kind of increases. It just breaks my heart like nothing else when they're fighting and they're not unified. Why? Because I love them. I love all of them. And to see one taken advantage of another is, is, is heartbreaking. And this is why Paul doesn't just leave us with this inspirational story. Hey, friends, I want you to be unified in one mind and full accord. I want you to just be this happy kumbaya kind of family. No, no, it is beautiful. It did change the known world, but he takes it in. This is where most of our time today will be spent, the cost of unity. He brings this into, into their home, and he brings this into our home. This kind of unity, if you've noticed, is not normal. As a matter of fact, it's really impossible, so impossible that we couldn't even create it if we wanted to. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Maintain it, not create it. We maintain unity. The Holy Spirit creates it. We maintain it. You, you ever met another Christian for the first time and something about your heart connects with their heart, this, this Spirit, the same Spirit in you and them, and you feel like you've known them or... Just, I mean, you just make friends right off the bat. It's like there's something that brings us together. That's what the Spirit does. He's a Spirit of unity. And that's why Paul says we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And notice, too, it's unity, not uniformity. Uniformity says we all look alike and think alike and act alike, like we're some kind of Christian robot. No, that's not the picture at all. It's one of unity because of diversity. Think about this church. His first three members were a Philippian jailer who was a Roman, worked for Rome. 
Lydia, this wealthy woman, probably served the Persians more than anything else, and this slave girl. And then Paul and Silas, they were both Jews. This little church would have been the only place in their entire society where those people could have ever possibly come together. And Paul calls them a family. There was no greater hostility that had ever existed between Jew and Gentile. But the power of God works in them to create this spirit and this environment of unity. And here's the sadness that exists in most of our churches. Because unity within diversity takes a lot of work. Most people have congregated to churches that have similar giftings and political leaning and ethnic backgrounds. All the baseball goes to one church and all the gloves go to another church and all the bats go to another one and no one really plays ball. And you know who suffers? Everyone. The world suffers because it doesn't see the gospel really work to bring unity in the midst of diversity. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us that, he says, I urge you to work, walk in a manner worthy of God with one calling in which you've been called. And he talks about the recipe that it takes with all humility and with gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Friends, maintaining unity is the point. It's the main characteristic that Jesus said would mark his church to the watching world is our love for one another, a real, authentic community. Paul even said that what good is it if you speak in tongues of angels but you don't love each other? Then it's pointless or it's worthless. And to really bring it home, listen, y'all, y'all hold on. Paul's going to keep screwing this thing in. This is going to get, this is an equal op- opportunity offender today. I, I tell you, I have gone on like five repentance walks since I've been studying this. Bec- Let's just keep going. This is not my counseling session. He reveals the poison and then the antidote. You, you ever gone to one of those doctors and uh, they take the x-ray and they put this thing on the screen. They're like, see that gray right there? And you're nodding in a firm. You have no idea what they're saying. It all looks gray. Yeah, yeah, doc, all looks gray. Yeah, that's the break. Uh, that's, that's the mass. That's, that's the thing. And then he goes, because he's trained and skilled at what he's doing, what we've got to do is we've got to take care of that problem. This is, this is what Paul does. He's like, Let's, let me tell you what the, real, what the real problem is. And not here just specifically in Philippi, but specifically in Philippi, but also for every Christian that would read this for the rest of the ages. Look at verse 3. This is the poison. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Really, really two warnings here. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a lens where you view everything about how it might benefit you. Every relationship has an opportunity to make yourself look better or feel better. Do nothing out of it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Don't do anything in the church. Don't do anything in the faith family. Do nothing in your life out of selfish ambition. That you are just trying to grow your own platform for the sake of people adoring you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition as, comp- as opposed to holy ambition where we all work together to extend the glory of God to the ends of the earth. That's what we should be doing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. Maybe yours just says, mine just says conceit. Maybe, maybe yours says vain conceit or empty conceit or the old King James. Don't anybody use the King James anymore? It says, it says, the, it says the phrase vain glory which really kind of gets at the heart of the word. Eugene Peterson says this about selfish ambition and vain conceit. 
Centering life in the insatiable demands of your ego, of the ego, is a sure path to doom. This is why Paul warned so uh, adamantly against it. Selfish ambition and vain conceit, a sure path to doom. Again, that word vain glory. Have you, you, ever, you ever read this? You ever heard about this? You ever celebrated this in your small group? This is your confession. You know, I really got, I got a real problem with, uh, with, uh, with vain glory. Paul says, do nothing out of it, and yet we never talk about it. He warns so strongly against it, and yet we, we don't even know what it is. For all have sinned and fallen short of the, what? Glory of God. See, this is going back to the way we were made. We, God created us, and he bestowed upon us his own glory. We were made in his image, Genesis says. And it was beautiful. And we walked with God in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve did. And then sin entered the picture. And what sin did was it wrecked or marred or destroyed the glory of God in us, which, which emptied us partly of the glory of God. And so we, we've known from the beginning since sin entered the picture that we've, we've had a glory deficit in our lives. Something that should be there that's not there. And so we want to do everything within our own power to bolster up that glory. The, the glory hunger in the sight of every man, every woman. Sin has left such a mark in our souls that we know that we're not enough and we know that we should be more. Isn't it amazing how the Bible will diagnose the problem of the human heart better than any counselor or psychiatrist? Men ask, will I ever measure up? Do I have what it takes? Women ask, am I beautiful enough or lovely enough? Do I have what it takes? That's the glory hunger inside of us. So we try to mask the glory deficit. We try to manipulate the system, even in the church, to synthetically prop up those needs by using other people, by gossiping and slandering so they look worse, so that we look better, by judging them. And this is what's going on in the church. This is the vain glory. This is the empty conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or conceit. That's the poison. And then the antidote. You don't want to hear this part. I promise you don't. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you hear these words? These are not just idealistic words. These are real. Can I bring something into the light with you? I struggle with this every day. I try to put on a good face. I try to be the adult in the relationship. I try to be the leader. It is so hard for me to consider you more significant than me if we can just be real honest because I want what I want to count others as more significant than me and their desires and wants more important than mine this is the struggle of sin notice notice too that Paul Paul doesn't say if you feel humble he says but in humility as if humility is not a feeling, but it's a posture that we take. It's that reconciling spirit. You ever taken your kids to Rainforest Cafe? It's the worst thing in the world. You go go pay $25 for a hamburger and $10 for a little cup of Sprite that has a dinosaur head on it or ape head or whatever they have on them. And the whole time, I've been there five times in my life, and there might be the five worst times of my life. Every time I'm there, I'm thinking, the chicken nuggets cost $17. The kid's meal, $17. And 
and I can't hear anybody, and this gorilla keeps talking in the corner, and you, you wait in line to get, it is, it is the worst. But you know why we go? Because we're good parents. And for a moment that we consider their preferences over our preferences. Because that's what it's like to be an adult. That you don't, you don't live just, just for yourselves, but in humility, you consider others more significant than yourselves. Isn't this what parenting teaches you? Isn't this what a good marriage teaches you? I've been married for over 20 years, and I love Ashley more than I've ever loved her. Yet there are moments that she annoys me and I annoy her more than ever before. But this is what maturity is. This is what marriage is. This, this, this is why the, why the words from Paul to the married couple is that he would love you like Christ loved the church. He would selflessly and sacrificially bestow love upon you and that you would respond with the leader, from that leadership of love and loving and respecting even when he doesn't deserve it. This is, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is what... Look at verse 4. Let each of you... See, he doesn't stop. He just keeps going. This is like... A, yeah, that was the jab. Here's the uppercut. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Listen, friends, this is where the enemy gets us. This is where he robs our joy, he robs our peace. If you've ever, the spirit of offense, of a perceived word said or an actual word said about you, against you, to you, an action, a slight, in marriage, in your family. What the enemy wants to do is he wants to create this spirit of offense. And what that spirit of offense does, I think uh, Titus calls it the root of bitterness. And what will happen is this root of bitterness will grow up in your heart. And it will rob you of all peace and joy. It will rob a community like this, a faith community of the presence of God. It will do so much damage, this root of bitterness, because of the spirit of offense. Because because. Because real community is not the absence of an offense or conflict. It's this reconciling spirit. Can I tell you how many people that I've counseled over the years who have not talked to their mom, they've not talked to their brother or cousin or whoever it is, or even their grown kids that they haven't talked for five years or 10 years or 15 years because of some spirit of offense over something that, that might be this big deal. But most of the times it's this little thing. And the enemy is winning each of you not look at your own interest, but also the interest of others. This is, interest is like this. Humility is the posture we put on. Then this is like other people's interest has to become like the top of our focus. This is the preferences. Remember, he tells them to be like-minded, one accord. And there are secondary issues and primary issues, absolutely. And there's freedom in the secondary issues. Can I say that? Freedom in the secondary issue. Some of you don't even, you, you cheer for the wrong sports teams. I'm okay with that. Some of you don't even like coffee. Half of my staff doesn't like coffee. I don't even trust them because they don't like the, the nectar of heaven. They just, I don't know what it is. There are entire categories of secondary issues. And I love you. And I love that you're passionate about those things. And they reflect your personality and background and culture. But we don't moralize those preferences. We don't place secondary things in the primary column. Does that make sense? 
But at the core level, there are primary issues that we have to stay like-minded about. The deity of Christ and the truth of God's word and the great commission to reach the world for Christ, to extend the message and mercy of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. We've got to be in one accord about those things. Do you realize how hard this is? To keep everyone's secondary preferences firmly in that column and not let them bleed over into the primary concern category? It's, it's nearly impossible. Listen, I, I grew up in church. My dad was a church planter and a pastor. And so I, we make the, you know, the, the joke that I was born in the church nursery and I wasn't, but it was really close. I'm sure I went the first Sunday. There was no like, we're going to wait till he gets the shots. And all, there was none of that. No, you are there. There's no other, no other place for you to go. This is, this is where you go. Mom taught every Sunday school class. Dad preached and ran the bus routes. I mean, it was a lot of work. We, they, they, they just did it together with, you know, kids on the hip. That's just kind of, this, that, so I grew up in church and it grieves my heart. I, I wept about this this morning, how many churches that I was in, knowing my dad's heart and him trying to serve, my mom's heart and him trying to lead, and how there were these power struggles in the church, and there were these splits in the church, and they would say things about my family in the church, and there would be this divide in the church, and half the church would get their feelings hurt and go somewhere else, and never once was that about the lack of evangelism. No, n- never once was it about the mission or message of Jesus. No, it was about the color of the carpet. It was about the temperature on the wall. It was about if we could plug the crockpots in in the back or not. It was about potluck dinner. It was about, literally, one of these churches, it was about, can we hang uh, uh, coat hooks in the foyer? Friends, we can't afford to be divided over secondary things. People are coming in here, they're limping in here, broken, so hurt by the world, dragging with them the brokenness and shame, and they're looking for hope. And they come in here, and if we fight about the same things that the rest of the world fights about, there's no power, there's no joy, there's no love. We have to guard against this selfishness. And here's the background of why Paul's even mentioned this and pushing this point so hard, because there's two women in this church who are doing everything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, and he's calling them out on it. He says in, in, in chapter 4, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine a disagreement so strong that the rest of the church is taking sides on, which is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul from jail is writing a letter to these ladies, and he says, I entreat you in the Lord to agree. To in humility count the other more significant than yourselves. To not look to your own interest, but also the interest of others. And he publicly calls for their unity and restoration. But this is the heart of God. Friends, there is no pastoral joy in the heart of God when there is unity, when there is disunity amongst his people. I hear people say all the time, my relationship with God's good, I don't need the church. Friends, you're deceived. If your relationship with God was as good as you think it is, the first thing that he would tell you is go be reconciled with other people. That's what he does. When you are walking with God, you walk in reconciled. It's such a big deal that Jesus said, hey, if you come to church and you realize before you even bring the offering, I don't want your money, I don't want your stuff. Before you even come to the front, if you've got something against the brother, whether you did it or they did it, it doesn't matter. If you've got something against them, I need you to go to them. I need to make it right. Well, what about what they did? Did he mention that? What about what you did? It'd be like us arguing with Jesus over the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus didn't argue with us about that. No, what did he do? He just forgave us. He just freely forgave us. 
The first thing that he would tell us to do to go be reconciled with each other because there's power in unity and there's beauty in unity. There has to be something. This has to be something that we have to wrestle through. This has got to be our culture as a church. Culture defined as the way we do things around here. You know, I would love to hear somebody say, oh, I've heard about Covenant Church. Man, they really love the Lord and they love each other. I'll be like, we're getting it. To only be around people who share your secondary preferences is not to be in a church. It's to be in a social club. Christianity is about love and love requires other people. So there's no mature faith isolated from Christian community. To say I don't need the church is to say I commit to spiritual immaturity. Now when we commit to sharing life with each other, striving side by side for faith in the gospel, there's going to be competing preferences. I chalk these things up to preference criticism. There's a way that you want church to happen, and when it doesn't happen the way that you want it to happen, there's a possibility for you to get your feelings hurt and email leadership about it. And the strongest disagreements come all the way up to the top. Can I talk to you as, as your pastor just for a minute, one of your pastors? There are legitimate needs that people have. Age, stage, and crisis. There are legitimate needs that people have, and every church can't meet every need. When we first started the church, we didn't have a youth group. And we had a family that had four teenagers. And they're like, well, you don't have a youth group. And I was like, help us start one. And they were like, we, we really just need our kids to have a second voice. And so you know what I did? I helped them find a church that had a thriving youth group. Not every church can meet every need. That's, that's fine. I understand that. But most of the time, it's not real needs. People just elevate their preferences. During COVID, it was the masks. You remember this? This was not too long ago. Maybe this, maybe it's too soon. This is too soon to even talk about this. I'm not kidding. On the same day, I get emails from, from multiple different people saying, uh, Pastor, if you, if you ask us to wear a mask, I'm not coming. And then other people say, hey, Pastor, if you don't ask us to wear a mask, then we can't come. What's a pastor supposed to do there? I tell you what me and Jason did. We spent days, if not weeks, praying through and fasting over what God would lead us to do. And we made a decision that I thought was logical and common sense somewhere in the middle. And people got their feelings hurt and just walked away. People complain about the air conditioner in here, and rightly so. It is either hot or miserable in here. I mean, you're, 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 and if you get lucky, you sit under one of the polar vortexes out there. And not even a hoodie is going to fix that. It is just, you just got to get up and move. That's just what it is. There's just no, nothing we can do about it. It's just, you know, hopefully in the new building, we'll have more dispersed air. I don't know. This was made to be a gymnasium, not, not a place for church. And every week, every week, somebody says, is it hot in here? Is it cold in here? Yes, it's both. It's both. Depending on where you're at, you're going to be miserable. We come up here during the summer, and, you know, the, all the furniture from, uh, they got from Goodwill is out there in the, in the, in the hallway. It's just everywhere. And I, I'm, people are like, looking at me like, Pastor, what are you going to do about this? Nothing. This is not our place. This is, you know, just, you just got to do it. Those are, those, are all, those are all preference things. It's not a reason to complain. Bring a sweater, bro. It'll be, it'll, it'll be fine. Fan yourself. Move to a different seat. People have complained and actually left our church because of how long the walk is up the hallway. Like we have something, something to do with that. There's a million ways people can have preferences about things. And it really is fine. Just don't moralize those preferences. Just don't make those preferences reason that you're going to divide community. 
It's the mature person that can live with a thousand different preferences that don't go their way. It's the toddler demands that they get their way every time. Listen, friends, if you want me to pastor your preferences, I quit. I just can't do it. But if you, wanna, if you want me to lead with wisdom, me and Jason to lead with wisdom and with a very gifted team, and we're going to extend the message and mercy of Christ, and we're going to extend the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness, if you want us to do that, then let's go. There's a world that's broken and hurting, and they're waiting for us to quit bickering about the air. If you bickered about the air, this is not my passive-aggressive way of like... <laughs> I bicker about the air every week. I just do on the way home. I just. <laughs> Friends, if we want to be a church that wants to live in the way of Jesus, to care about his mission, to extend his mercy to the world, then we can't look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We have to take the posture of humility and carry, uh, consider others as more important than even ourselves. Here's what I'm saying. Friends, this cannot be about you. This cannot be about us. This is about him. It's about them. We're a rescue ship sent to carry the love of God to a world who is so desperate for it. Do you see the cost? This is the cost of unity. You don't just become a kumbaya kind of church. You have to work for it. It costs you something. Reconciling costs you something. You've been so mad at your spouse, so mad at a friend. It's amazing how quickly you can just get so angry about something. And you know to reconcile, it costs you something. It costs you your pride and your ego. It might cost you forgiveness, some embarrassment. But to reconcile, it costs you. That you have to lay down those things that are important to you for the sake of reconciling to other people. Man, I'm out of time. I've got two points left. The picture of unity. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, then have this mind among you that's yours in Jesus Christ. This is the picture who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Basically, Paul's saying, listen, you want the picture of this? Then look at Jesus. Look at all that he is, all that he gave. Look at the grace of God that we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We were enemies with God. We were hostile in mind, as Caroline was talking about in Ephesians 2. We were enemies with him. And he didn't come just to inspire us or to cheer us on. No, he comes alongside us. And he said, listen, is there shame and brokenness in your life, pride and insecurity? Then in my love, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to unite my heart with yours. And your union with Jesus is what encourages you and changes you and comforts you. Friends, this is the grace of God at work in our lives. What God does in you, he wants to do through you. And if you read this passage and you walk away and say, you know what, I just got to try harder to be better then you've missed it. That's religion. That'll, just, that'll crush you if you try to live like this on your own strength. Some people are just hard to love, but not too hard for God to love. Religion says do this and live like this and maybe you'll be good enough for God's family, but that's not what Paul's saying. That is not what the Holy Spirit is saying to your heart today. Look at this relational language in verse 1. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love, participation in spirit. Does that sound like striving? No, that's not striving. 
We don't have a spirit of fear. We don't have a spirit of striving or earning. We don't have an orphan spirit trying to be good enough to be accepted into God's family. No, we have a spirit of adoption. That God has offered us access into his family as dearly loved sons and daughters. God says, I want you. I choose you. I love you. Come find your place in my family. Do you see how the soul cry changes from I'm inadequate, I don't know if I measure up, to I'm dearly loved? He gives us tenderness and compassion. When it's hard, God says, I understand. When life is brutal, Jesus whispers, come to me. I'll be kind to you. I'll be tender to you. Do you know what it's like to have that as the operating system of your life? The power of the Spirit, the comfort of God, union with Christ. This is a revolution in the world of the human heart. And this is what we have in Jesus. This is what Caroline is praying that those people in Nepal would get just a taste of, of love and mercy and grace. We have to, we get to enjoy and delight in the satisfaction of his love. This is what Merzlaf Wolf said. Christ came to transform us from never enough people to more than enough people. Through his poverty, we may become rich. What if we live like this as a church? What if when people walked in here, they could sense the spirit of a loving, agape, sacrificial, in humility, loving community? Look at the result of this passage in 9, and we'll probably come back to this. Therefore, because, because Jesus took that position, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Unity releases God's blessing and his power. Because Jesus didn't pursue his own interest or live for his own glory, but came to generously and graciously give his life for ours, God poured out the blessing of heaven on him. And he does the same for us. Psalms 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. God commands his blessing when he sees unity. Isn't that incredible? Let me bring it home. My invitation this morning is that you would look at your relationships. The conflicts that may be unresolved things in your life and that you wouldn't focus on the plausible but the, pos but the possible. Because community is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a reconciling spirit. Friends, you have access to a supernatural power to resolve conflict, to cooperate with the work of the Spirit and to the momentum of heaven, to have a reconciling spirit. And there are thousands of people in this community that are counting on Covenant Church to getting this right, that we would be a loving, sacrificial, agape church that looks so differently than the world. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to have communion in just a minute, but... I want to just give you some specific questions that I want you to ask yourself as you kind of process. If you process what the Lord is saying to you. First, are you here to give or to get? Am I here to serve 
or to have people serve me? Do you have an agenda or agape love? See, the church is not something you get to curate based on your preferences. It's a community you learn to love because of the power of Jesus. This is ultimately what we're after, is learning to love one another as family. Our church won't be built by programs, but by the strength of our love. We won't be defined as the, by the preferences of few, but by the love and unity of many. We won't build our church by a few people who fund the whole thing, but by the sacrifices of everyone. So let's let Christ satisfy us and change us and fulfill us in such a way that his love flows from us to create a counter community in the middle of our city, like a little city on a hill, like a lamp in a dark room. Let me finish and I'm going to pray for us. The words of Paul again, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. My simple invitation this morning is to join us in doing this. Let the spirit of adoption take over your heart. We're going to have communion in just a second. It's just beautiful and weekly reminder of this, that we did nothing to earn salvation. It was a free gift by faith through his grace. And we're going to take the cup and the little wafer and be reminded that God loves us. And we're going to go back to our seats and be reminded that God has sent us back to a spiritual family. We'll have some people praying in the back, the prayer team. Listen, when you start really waiting in this, the enemy is going to bring up all kind of stuff. Maybe you just need to put your arm around somebody and say, will you, will you pray with me about this? Maybe you've got an estranged relationship. Maybe it's not even about you. Maybe you've got some dear friends, people in your own family that won't talk to each other. You just want to pray the spirit of unity would be present. Let me pray for us. God, I love you. I thank you for your gift of mercy and grace. Lord, do this in our hearts. Lord, what can we do without you? Nothing. God, I pray that you work in our faith family. You begin to stir hearts, that you would bring up offenses that we need to ask forgiveness for. Give us the power to forgive others. That we would be a real church of an, an agape love kind of church. full of your grace, extending your glory. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Me and some of the people will be in the back to pray. Communion tables are open. This is uh, open communion, meaning you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be part of God's family. So if you've placed your faith and trust in him, I invite you to come whenever you're ready. Take as much time to pray through this as you need to. Again, prayer team will be in the back.